All right, my film friends, movie mates, and podcast people. That was not bad riffing, alliteration off the top of the dome. As a rock, 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 rock a microphone. If anyone remembers that absolute banger of a song from like, I want to say 2004. Anyway, podcast people, movie mates, and what else did I say? Film friends. Yeah. Uh, coming to you live. Except it's not live. It's pre-recorded on my sofa in my living room in front of a TV. And distributed to you about 12 hours later. This anyway, you know, enough of this jibber-jabber. Um, we are going to do today the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, a Wes Anderson film. I'm not going to lie to you, a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that. I don't know tons of Wes Anderson movies. I just haven't seen tons of them. For whatever reason, they've escaped me. Um, but as previously mentioned with this podcast... Uh, I do like to have watched the film at least once first, you know, get that sort of genuine viewing experience uh, without having to pause it to either record, you know, some dialogue about it or pause it to make some notes on a pad or something like that. You know, I like to just watch it as is first and then on my second watch or, you know, third watch, whatever, um, then I'll do a, a pod about it. So I have seen this movie before. I got it when it came out on Dovodo. Um Whenever it came out. When did it come out? I'm scanning the back of the DVD. But they make the writing so darn small. 2014. Um, and I haven't seen it since it came out on DVD. I remember really enjoying it at the time. And like I said, I wasn't too familiar with Wes Anderson. And his sort of like weird and wacky. Kind of playful, fun filmmaking. Um, so this rewatch will be similar to a first watch. Um, in the sense that I can't really remember a lot about it. I just remember enjoying it. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's, uh, let's get the show on the road. Start talking some movies. So straight away, first uh, shot. I mean, there's like music building in the background with a few titles, you know, like Fox Light Search Productions, whatever it is. Fox Search, I don't know, whatever that production company is. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's music building in the background. And then the first opening establishing shot that you see, um, if you've listened to some of my other podcasts, you've heard about the importance of establishing shots. Uh, and this one nails it, you know, um, straight away we get a sort of the a third of the screen is, you know, um, the immediate area that the character is going into, which is a cemetery. And we know it's a cemetery because we can see a couple of graves, um, but then it also says blah, 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 cemetery uh, in big letters. So if you ever learned how to read, then you know exactly where you are. And then the sort of upper third of the screen is... Um, like a not quite a skyline of the city but you know it is a cityscape in effect um and straight away we're aware that it's winter um it's also a little bit um I, I don't they do say where this is set at the start of the movie but i'm not gonna lie to you um you can you know get mad at me and cancel me for my ignorance if you want i'm not sure if this country is real um, I should probably Google that before I start making statements on a recorded podcast. But like I say, if you want to cancel me, cancel me. I don't have that many listeners anyway, so it wouldn't bother me. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know if it's fictitious or not, but straight away we do get that very sort of like stereotypical Eastern European kind of vibe, you know, a bit sort of communist, um, not very westernized. Um, 
and I don't want to sound harsh because I'm describing an Eastern European place, but it does look a bit bleak. But that's partly because of like you know the coldness of the weather, um, and I believe the period of time that it's set in as well. It's not massively modern, so it shows us straight away where we are, what the vibe is, you know, what the kind of place is that we are in, and uh, yeah, onwards we go. I love a good bit of fourth wall breaking. Um, so we get essentially the author of the Grand Budapest Hotel book uh, doing a little fourth wall breaking to the camera, talking about, you know, being a writer and that sort of thing. And then, see, I don't know if this is typical of Wes Anderson, but I'm pretty sure it's typical of this film and the vibe of this film. As he's delivering this, you know, sort of sincere um, you know, monologue to the camera explaining about, you know, what it's like to be a writer, where you draw your inspirations from and everything, His what I'm assuming is his son like off screen on the right just starts shooting him with a bb gun <laughs> and he sort of you know breaks character in the sense of breaks narration character you know breaking the fourth wall to the audience and turns to him just like stop it stop it and then he carries on you know uh where he left off reading to the camera and then just before he finishes his son sort of appears over his shoulder touches him on the shoulder and says oh i'm sorry and then again, sort of without breaking stride of his speech to the camera, he's like, it's all right, and just carries on. It's just a really weird, wacky thing to do. I don't know if it's maybe because a lot of people um, can grow a bit bored of some sort of like narration or just um, too much exposition, you know, from a narrator or from a fourth wall carrier. You know, um, I guess sometimes not, there are examples of brilliant narration, you know, like uh, Jason Statham in Snatch. Great narration um, helps us sort of get to the important points of the plot without too much uh, exposition. But um, sometimes it can be a little bit lazy. Um, so just to set up, you know, what the story of the Grand Budapest Hotel is, we have this little bit of uh, fourth wall breaking narration at the start. And then it's just sort of, you know, there's a speed bump of this kid randomly shooting in with a BB gun. So I guess it's sort of just breaks it up for the audience, sort of lets them know maybe the sort of vibe that they're going to get from this film in the sense of its, you know, weirdness, um, but also just helps that particular bit of fourth wall breaking narration be less boring and monotonous. Like my explanation of it just was. <laughs> I love then the, um, sorry, I'm talking so much about like the first couple of minutes of this film, but once we sort of leave the author and his exposition, um, it then goes to, a wide shot of what is quite obviously, you know, a sort of uh, fake setting. Um, you know, it, it sort of looks like cardboard painting. You remember what like uh, Monty Python used to do, you know, where they sort of would like draw very um, two-dimensional, almost like cardboard looking animations. Um, the There's basically like a sort of cable car tower of sorts and then it pans across to the Grand Budapest Hotel and you see this little... It's all the way on the top of a mountain, so you see this sort of little cable car thing make its way up to it. And it is all very obviously not legitimate footage, but it's done in the way that it's not supposed to convince you that it's legitimate footage. Do you know what I mean? It's done in a very, um, I don't know, like earnest sort of fun kind of way. Yeah, it's not pretending to not be animation. Um, it just looks really cool. It's just an interesting take, you know, because most of the directors probably either would have built sort of legitimate sets or used CGI to make it. And I imagine that they've used some sort of like miniatures. If you don't know what miniatures are in film, um, one of the best examples of it would be something like Lord of the Rings. Um, so if you take Helm's Deep, for example, which is in uh, The Two Towers, 
Um, it's, you know, sort of like a, a castle fortress of sorts embedded in the side of a mountain. And um, when they do the big sort of grand swooping shots of it, you know, where they sort of like will drag the camera all the way across the uh, the turrets of the, the castle keep and things. Um, all of that is legitimately done, but what they've done is create like a small scale model, um, which they call a miniature. So it's almost like having a sort of... Um, you know, a, a toy set, you know, kind of thing. Um, but obviously it's, you know, painted up very well and, and looks awesome and everything. So I'm pretty sure that's what Wes Anderson did a lot with this film was make these miniatures, you know, these little cardboard cutouts of the Grand Budapest Hotel sitting on top of a mountain and things like that. Um, I really like it. It's um, it's a really cool way to, to make films, you know, without relying on CGI because, you know, CGI can be great, but it also can look awful sometimes. Um, so even though, like I said, these cardboard cutout miniature things don't necessarily look completely real i don't know it just gives them a sort of very nice um earnest quirk to the film so it's like you know you you're not bothered or at least i'm not bothered by the fact that it's not real i'm just like oh this is cool look at this little quirky little place we're in quick comment on the awesomeness of the dialogue in this movie um if you listen to my one about fargo my podcast about fargo i comment quite heavily about um, how different characters having their own way of speaking and their own sort of cadence and choice of words is very important. Uh, so as the narration carries on from the author, it changes from, um, oh, what's the dude's name? Uh, Tom Wilkinson changes from him uh, at the beginning to Jude Law. It's, you know, because it jumps back in time. So they use Jude Law as the younger version of him. So he picks up the narration and for both of them, their choice of words, because Jude Law is basically, again, setting the scene, talking about a few of the guests and things that are also staying at the hotel and the concierge and everything. And his choices of words are like you're reading, you know, a well-established author's book, you know, very, uh, very sort of broad breadth of language that he's using, much better than me stumbling and babbling, you know, trying to find words to put together to make a coherent podcast. Um, just imagine you're reading, you know, legit good authors like Stephen King or um it shows my lack of book knowledge there how's J.R. Tolkien again and that'll be the second time I reference Lord of the Rings this podcast <laughs> you know it's legitimate you know it's not just oh I was in a hotel and there was a couple of other people knocking about you know what I mean it's not like that he's using we were all together in solitude and blah 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 how can you be together in solitude I don't know just pff, watch it you'll get what I mean okay Wes Anderson's awesome at using the ca the camera as a sort of um, character or at least uh, using it to bring the audience in as if we're there as a character with them, um, which might sound like a complete load of old pish posh, but I'll try and explain what I mean. So as Jude Law's character is talking to the concierge, um, there's a gentleman sat down uh, in the middle of the um, foyer and it turns out he's the owner of the hotel and he's played by F. Murray Abraham. Um who is wicked um and if anybody's seen mythic quest he's the old dude who the the writer in mythic quest the guy who writes all the stories for it um you should know him from many other things he's a very well-established dude anyway um and as uh they're, they're talking jude law's like who's that old geezer and um the concierge is like oh don't you know that's the owner of the hotel and then sort of to show his surprise and shock there's a just a real simple sort of um like a tilt pan from the concierge to Jude Law uh, and then around to the to F. Murray Abraham. So 
instead of just doing like quick cuts, you're being carried along the journey of realization with the camera. Whereas if they just cut from the concierge, cut to Jude Law and cut to F. Murray Abraham, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't sort of be taken along that journey of realization as strongly. Um, and then there's another bloke in the foyer who starts choking and the camera starts on a real wide from him. And as he's choking, it does a real quick sort of zoom in to him. I don't know if they used a track or a zoom for it. Um, the track, if you don't know, by the way, I've spoke, I don't know if I've ever explained this, but essentially it's literally you have like a train track sort of contraption along the floor and you just push the camera on wheels to it. So it creates that, um, you know, you don't get any like bumps in the in the tracking um, compared to a steady cam, which is normally where a uh, camera operator will have a harness on his or her or their body um, holding the camera on it and will, you know, just sort of follow the actors around on foot, which normally gives you a slightly shakier look to it. Very good for things like uh, battle scenes, you know, where there's a bit of carnage and chaos. Um, but they, they have these really cool things. I'm not quite sure how they work because it's always blown my mind, but I am a simple man, so it's not hard to blow my mind. But they'll have like weights and things on the harness, um, making life hell for the camera operator, but somehow these weights counterbalance, like, I don't know, gravity? Or maybe they're magic and there's a wizard using them. But they can often make, although you've got a person walking with the camera, they can often counteract, you know, the steps that this person is taking to give you as little shake on the camera as possible. So, you know, there's several things you can do. Either way, this shot of the guy choking in the foyer to sort of um, highlight the um, the imminent danger, you know, uh, of him potentially dying, the camera just sort of zooms right in on him. Um, then we get a, a close-up on the concierge where he goes, shit. So it's like a real close-up on his face. So where we're right there up in his personal space, that sort of shows his panic, um, cut to a wide, he runs over to him. And then there's quite a funny shot where it's a it's on that wide again of the guy choking with the concierge looking after him, um, the same wide that it was before it zoomed into him choking. And then the camera just tracks sideways, like I say, on those little train tracks. So you can use those to go forward, sideways, whatever you want to do. Um, it just tracks sideways over to Jude Law, who sort of watches for a bit, and then his narration says something along the lines of, it didn't hold my interest for long, and then he just gets in an elevator. Um, so the fact that there aren't any cuts, but well, there are cuts in what I just explained, but between the concierge actually attending to the choking guy and then the track along to Jude Law and then him getting into the elevator, there aren't any cuts. So again, that's coming back to my original point of we're there with the characters um, and the lack of cuts help the audience sort of stay rooted in the scene so we can really get a good glimpse of um, what's going on. Um, I'm 15 minutes into this podcast already, and I've literally spoken about the first three minutes of the film, so I'm going to try not to ramble on about every scene, but I just love really good filmmaking, so, you know, this might be a long one, it might be a short one, I might try and deliberately avoid talking too much about every scene, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, I really want to quickly um, ramble over some stuff, um, but we're basically at the point now uh, where there's another flashback where... Jude Law is talking to um, F. Murray Abraham. Abraham? Yes. Um, about, you know, how he acquired possession of the Grand Budapest Hotel to begin with. And they have they start this conversation in the Turkish baths. Um, 
and there's an establishing... Sh- We've already seen the Turkish baths, uh, as Jude Law was describing the ins and outs of the hotel and other guests and things to begin with. Um, but they're over in a, a different section of it, which we haven't seen before. So we get a nice establishing shot of the Turkish baths to tell the audience what room we're in. And then it tracks sideways to the uh, right side of the screen and reveals those two. So it's it's a nice setting to have that interaction between them where we start you know, getting to know a little bit more about F. Murray Abraham as he speaks to Jude Law. Um, and it's a nicer, more sort of, uh, not intimate setting, but it's a better setting to have that conversation in. So it's a handy thing to do for a director. So if they want to have somewhere that the audience hasn't seen before, they need to sort of lead us into where it is. So having the establishing shot of the Turkish baths and then tracking to the right, it's just a real nice, neat way to do that. Um, then they go to dinner and he starts to tell him the story about how he came into possession of the hotel. Um, and the lighting, the camera zooms in a little bit, like it's it's on a sort of medium, they're sat at a dinner table, so it's on a sort of medium of his like waist up above the, the table surface and his head. Um, and then the camera zooms in a little bit to more or less a close-up, not quite an extreme close-up. Um, and as it does so, the lighting changes. So we just sort of get this sense that like we are about to, you know, maybe go back in time or, you know, maybe sort of, be told a be told a tale um so it's just a nice sort of little quirky thing to do playing with the lighting playing with the camera zoom and things just to let the audience know we're about to go on a little journey there are so many amazing things to talk about when they introduce ray finds character um he's the original concierge um that f murray abraham mentioned when he's speaking to jude law um there's so many brilliant camera shots and everything. I won't go into all of them. Um, a lot of them are very subtle and simple, but it's similar in theme to what I've already been explaining, you know, sort of um, instead of cutting, we get actual camera movement um, and things like that. But one of the main things that I wanted to talk about with um, Ray Fiennes is, again, what I was talking about of each character having their own sort of way of speaking, their own dialect, um, cadence, that sort of thing. So where he's a concierge in a very grand hotel... It's a Grand Budapest Hotel, actually. Um, he's um, obviously very eloquent in the way that he speaks, but he's also amazing at his job and doesn't take any shit. You know, he, he has to sort of order a lot of the other staff in the hotel around, tell them what to do, that kind of thing. But he's also not going to take uh, some shit from some guests. And Tilda Swinton plays this guest who um, is just a bit anxious and and erratic about like leaving and traveling um and sort of making his day a little bit uh difficult so she'll come up with you know sort of ridiculous excuses as to why she can't travel away and he'll just cut it down um and he he he's the first person to curse in the movie um so she's like come with me to blah 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 and he's like to fucking where <laughs> but he does it with obviously his like you know his rp which you don't know what rp is it's called received pronunciation which is the queen's english you know so everybody talks very nice and proper and it's all very lovely um so he's speaking very eloquently like that and being like a, you know what you expect from a high class sort of hotel guest and then he just throws in these like curse words every now and then and like when she leaves he's like uh she was shaking like a shitting dog um <laughs> it's just very good because it it says a lot about his character and, and uh, who he is, you know, in the in the ways that he's talking and his choices of words um, and his swearing. Um, and, you know, there's, again, great uh, camera work sort of throughout this entire movie. Um, so I won't go into it and break it down, but I'm sure if you watch it, if you're watching it with a sort of 
you know, keeping in mind some of the things I've already mentioned, you'll pick up on it um, and you'll see why it's so good. So I won't have to go into it all for you. Lots of wonderful symmetry as well um, in these shots. For example, um, after Ray Fiennes has done a little bit of interviewing of the lobby boy, um, there's a lovely sort of wide shot uh, on one of the, I guess it's some sort of big grand hallway, like a staircase hallway that you'll have in a, in a large hotel. Um, and we see, you know, there's the, an apex of stairs coming from left and right meeting in the middle, a big chandelier hanging down in the middle, all these balconies and lights and everything. And it's literally a completely symmetrical shot. Um, symmetry in film is so satisfying for the viewer <laughs> and I don't know if many people um, are even aware of it I know that so many filmmakers are and will strive to do it uh, TV shows like The Hannibal Show is amazing at it um, but yeah you'll see it a lot in different films and I don't know there's something just very satisfying about a beautiful symmetrical shot um, I don't really know why but it's whenever I see it, I'm like, hey, you did well there. You must have studied shapes in school because you know the shapes and the symmetry. Um, yeah, that was an accent that from somewhere. Oh, and then, of course, the sorry, I forgot to add on the shot then just like pans down um, to the, the carpet. So we, you know, go from looking at the chandelier and the apex staircase, just pans down to look at the carpet of the lobby floor, which again is a completely symmetrical shot. All the patterns and shapes and everything on the carpet are completely symmetrical. Um, oh, and I don't know if I have explained the difference between a pan and a track. So like I said before, track is normally done on some sort of uh, dolly or literal, you know, almost railway-esque track. A pan is where the camera will just sort of tilt or, or move, you know, tilt, left, down, upright, whatever. Um, and it's more sort of, you know, it's like pivoting on the spot kind of thing. That's the difference between a track and a, and a pan. So don't say I didn't teach you anything if you didn't already know it. And if you already knew it, then I'm sure you'll just go, bravo, Luke, well done. You say things well. And I, I'm going to try not to, you know, keep repeating myself, but I was saying before about the camera acting as a sort of character to like carry the audience through as if they were right there with the characters. There are so many shots where it, there'll be like an establishing one, like I mentioned with the Turkish bath and then a track across to, you know, reveal a character or a new place or so many pans between character glances. Like one character will glance at another character and the camera will just pan around to them as opposed to doing a quick cut. Um, it's just a really nice fun way to, to film things, you know, instead of just having cuts and and things you know and cuts can be used very efficiently and effectively and, and um, they have a lot of merit in and of themselves but um you know doing things with pans and it's just a nice sort of almost fresh take because that sort of uh that eye of the, the the director and the cinematographers to sort of conjure up that you know envision that and then actually put it into effect um I don't know, I think it's quite rare. Uh, it's not one of the more common things, so it's very good. Um, and then to comment again on the symmetry within this film, like I said, so many of the shots will be beautifully symmetrical, you know, be it a doorway with uh, certain things on either side of it or the, the shot of the um, the inner lobby of the hotel, and things like that. Um, they also start to do symmetry with the characters. So there's a scene when um, Ray finds, and uh, the character's name is Zero, um, Tony Revolori, sorry. Um, he plays the younger F. Murray Abraham uh, as the lobby boy. So he uh, and Ray Fiennes are sat on a, 
a train and they basically get um, boarded by uh, some sort of soldiers during the closing of the frontier um, and they're suspicious of Zero's papers uh, saying that, you know, he's uh, not allowed to be there because he's an immigrant. Um, classic oppression, right? Uh, so anyway, um, they have a little bit of a scuffle and then the soldiers slam Rafe Fiennes and Zero into opposite sides of the carriage uh, walls. And so it's like, slam, and then it cuts to zero, slam, and then it cuts back to Ray Fiennes, and he's like, ah, oh, and then it cuts back to zero, and he goes, ah. Oh. So we, it's like, they're, they're both having the exact same experience, and it's presented to us in a completely symmetrical way. Um, so I don't know why Wes Anderson might do that, but it's, you know, it's it makes a sort of what otherwise could be quite a brutal scene of, you know, soldiers, um, you know, sort of being a bit, untoward to an immigrant which is very easy to come across as like dark it just makes it a little bit more comical and tongue-in-cheek when we watch it because um, like i said the tone of this film is you know very light and uh and comical another thing that's great about this film is the character design character design sorry um and the costumes so you know anyone from ray fines and the concierge and the lobby boy and and all of that you know sort of having their grand budapest hotel uniforms um to then people like um jeff goblin's character sort of you know glasses suit and tie very um professional because he's the um oh he's not the accountant um he basically sort of take care takes care of a lot of the financial matters and things for the hotels and the uh, tilda swinton's wealthy family um so then you have obviously tilda swinton as well hair up in a big bonnet you know loads of pearls and rings and jewelry and things sort of showing her um her status uh, and her son played by adrian brody sort of like dark hair mustache looks a bit sort of like gothy and evil um and then you know the most evil character of all is uh willem dafoe's character who's essentially a sort of like hitman bodyguard type person for adrian brody and you know, Willem Dafoe is very unique looking anyway. A lot of strong features, you know, like strong nose, strong cheekbones. Um, and he has that, that deep sort of gravelly, vo not gravelly voice, but, you know, um, it's it almost sounds dry. You know, he has that sort of dry, almost like vocal fry to his voice, but it's it's not a vocal fry like Kim Kardashian. You know what I mean? If you've heard Willem Dafoe speak, you know what I mean? Um and yeah, he, you know, he has this almost like buzz cut. So he's got this sort of short spiky hair, which, you know, sort of looks quite thuggish. And he's wearing these giant brass rings on all of his fingers. Um, so he just, and you know, big leather coat. So it just looks very sort of intimidating. The the individual character d design for everybody in this film is, is like really on point. And it really sort of tells a lot about, you know, who they are, what their status is, um, yeah, it's just, it's good stuff. Um, again, so many amazing, like, camera camera tricks. Um, or, well, I suppose not really tricks. Um, just executions, you know, be it when someone's... I've definitely spoken about this sort of thing before, but when someone's talking about something either sort of deeply personal to them or highly emotive, or if it's sort of a, an important piece of plot, for example, um, we often do either get a zoom in or a cut to a, a close-up of you know a character as they you know deliver whatever the line might be again very simple but effective uh, way of sort of letting the audience know um what is currently being discussed is important um and then likewise as well if the characters may be a little bit more mysterious um it will often be sort of on uh 
wides or extreme wides where you can't quite make out who they are. Um, and of course, you know, exquisite use of um, symmetry and, you know, camera tracking and panning, etc. Um, and then there's a really cool bit where uh, after Ray Fiennes ends up in um, prison, they're smuggling and digging tools through baked goods. Um, and there's a, a shot where there's a, you know, a guard sort of inspecting all these food items coming through. Um, so he it basically, I, I, I think I've seen a behind the scenes thing of this exact shot um, on like Instagram or something. And it's uh, basically a sort of conveyor belt with these things on there. The camera's completely stationary looking at the whichever you know food item is on the conveyor belt um and you only see the guards sort of hands uh, as he's you know chopping them up so a loaf of bread appears he chops through it to make sure there's nothing there um he gestures for it to move on the conveyor belt moves again camera stays completely still next food item appears he chops it next food item appears it's the baked goods with the digging tools in them they look so pristine and exquisite and you know very like artistic baking um that the camera then pans up from where it was we see the guard sort of contemplate chopping them and then decide it's not worth it they're small uh, baked goods they look so nice there's no point camera pans back down moves along next item of food appears he chops it to check for things um it's just a really cool bit of like practical filmmaking where i'm sure you know in reality, you wouldn't just have like this conveyor belt of things coming through and someone chopping it and everything, you know, it probably would just be sort of a table one thing after another, but it's it's a just a cool, more interesting way to present that to the audience. And as well, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't hold up the film, you know, with the fact that it's moving quite quickly along this conveyor belt, it's like food appears, chop, chop, move along, chop, chop, move along, etc. It's, you know, you're not boring the audience or like spoon feeding them too much um so on that note at risk of boring the audience let's move on to something else the uh chase sequence i suppose for lack of a better term uh, between jeff goldblum and uh willem dafoe is really cool and really simple it's it's um it's like a subtle chase you know they're not running um you know jeff goldblum sort of just like walking uh, away from him and a lot of the shots from Jeff Goldblum will be you know um, the only as wide as it will go will sort of just be to cover his whole body or it'll be mids or close-ups um, unless he then walks away from the camera to sort of uh, show I don't know maybe it shows his sort of isolation and the fact that the fact that he's on his own and there's no one to sort of help him while he's being pursued by uh, Willem Dafoe and the music starts to amp up a little bit and the camera gets a bit more frantic either with its cuts or with its sort of zooming in on different things. Um, whereas at the start of the chase, uh, a lot of the shots are, you know, either sort of just held st like stationary shots. Um, so, you know, so as the mu music um, speeds up to sort of up the tension, the camera work gets a little bit more frantic. Um, and then the soundscape for it is good. You know, I mentioned the music speeding up, uh, but then also uh, you you don't see too much of Willem Dafoe as he's chasing Jeff Goldblum. Uh, you know, you might sort of see him on his bike, but it's not a close-up of him. It will be a distant shot. Um, or then as he's sort of following him into the building, um, you quite often only see his sort of shadow on the floor. But then with the soundscape, you just hear the, like, um, the footsteps, you know, like, not a clippity-clop like a horse, but, you know, it's like clip, clop, clip, clop of his, of his boots on the floor. Um, so that in and of itself sort of creates like an ominous tension 
Um, real simple stuff, but real effective. Like Wes Anderson knows exactly what he's doing. And then, of course, as the chase sort of reaches its climax, we actually see a shot of Willem Dafoe take off his boots. And again, we don't get to see Willem Dafoe's face or anything. We only get to see uh, literally like a side shot of his feet um, and he slips out of his boots. So then, you know, the the stalking noise of him, you know, clip-clopping after Jeff Goldblum is taken away. So you're like, oh, oh he's going to get the jump on him. And then, of course, he does. And there's a real grim shot with poor Jeff Goldblum. Just as you think he's going to go through this door to safety, um, he put there's a sliding door and he puts his hand on the on the door frame um, and as he gets got by Willem Dafoe he slams the door shut and his fingers fall off which is real grim um, poor Jeff Goldblum he got got uh, but yeah it's a real you know it's a it's a chase sequence with a lot of tension and a lot of drama without you know it's not like a, a Mission Impossible motorbike chase sequence or anything like that like not discrediting those at all there fantastic in and of themselves but it's a very different sort of chase sequence with an excellent amount of of tension despite the fact that it's essentially just people walking through a building there's a great bit of almost like slapstick laurel and hardy-esque um humor here whereas the ray fines and harvey Keitel and all the other prisoners oh also by the way great um character design for harvey Keitel, very robert de niro and cape fear you know um, he's got a shaved head and covered in tattoos and that sort of thing. Um, looks like a an odd bastard. Um, anyway, so yeah, the the great bit of sort of Laurel and Hardy slapstick comedy is uh, as they're breaking out. Uh, you know how I've said a lot that the camera's done a lot of tracks left and right. Um, you know, sort of laying out the scene that way. Um, you know, they they go through this uh, this gate and then the camera tracks left. Uh, as it follows the characters as they move left of screen it tracks along to them to the start of a ladder that's laid sideways along a wall sort of like on hooks on the wall um and then you know one of the characters at the front of that ladder picks it up and then starts uh, running to the right of frame and the car camera doesn't follow them this time it stays where it is and then all the characters i think there's about five of the prisoners escaping they're all holding a part of this ladder and it's just comically long <laughs> it's just a really really long ladder uh, as they all sort of run from from left to right so um i think it's just like a visual gag like just a sort of bit of a joke um messing around with the ridiculous length of this ladder um but it's just amusing they really lean into like the slapstick silliness as they're escaping like they go into um the guards bunker rooms so you've got all these guards sleeping in you know rows and rows of of bunks and some of them are like commando crawling underneath the bunks and some of them are sort of like skipping in a kind of tiptoey way uh, over the sleeping bodies of the guards and stuff and you see the silhouettes on the walls of them like skipping over them and stuff it's really daft and um then there's a moment where they op they open a uh, sort of a, like a hatch in the in the floor, um, and we see it from below as they open the hatch. We see it from below. All five of the pri escapee prisoners' heads sort of like peer over from an edge. Um, you know, it's like that that moment moment in Friends when um, few of them aren't allowed in Monica and Chandler's apartment, and they do that like talking heads thing. You know, as their heads are like leaning around the the door frame, it's very much like that. And then the camera um, switches view to see what they're looking at, and there's five guards sat around a table like playing poker or something. And it's a again, it's a symmetrical shot in the sense that you get their all sort of like five talking head moment as they look up into this hatch and see the uh, the escape prisoners. Um, 
and then one of the prisoners just before the guards can like raise the alarm and pull out their guns and start shooting and everything he just uh jumps down there with a knife you you only see uh, again the talking head perspective of like the five prisoners looking down at him as after he's just jumped down there with a knife and you hear like a scuffle and you hear some anguish cries and things and then it goes uh, from their perspective again to down, look down at the guards and he's like killed all of them <laughs> and is also you know taken a, a stab um to the torso as well and and dies and then ray finds to sort of break the uh you know, break the uh, the the violence up with a the joke. Just goes well. I suppose you'd call that a draw. <laughs> like so again, it's sort of using jokes and humor to um, uh, make the dark times and the violence a little bit more palatable and and keep the mood of the film light. Um, oh, and there's a great moment as well where they ju- before that, literally just before they do that hatch sequence, uh, they jump down this like. Uh, uh, laundry sort of vent um what do you call it like a laundry chute yeah and they land in this like bucket and like one jumps down shimmies to the side one jump the, another one jumps down shimmies to the side and then all five of them do that so it's like all within sequence um and then from that from them sitting in this giant laundry basket it then tilts down to that hatch and then they do the hatch sequence so again you you don't get a lot of cuts and everything and the camera's just there involved taking you on this little uh, escape quest it's great it's such good fun filmmaking just a quick note on Ray Fiennes' performance in this film. Like every actor's performance in this film is awesome. Like it's a it's a stupidly expansive A list cast. You know, Ed Norton, Bill Murray, um, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum. You know, like the names are Tilda Swinton. You know, there's so many big names in this film. Uh, but Ray Fiennes in particular, um, as the concierge, he has so many long, convoluted monologues. You know, be it when he's trying to order people around what they need to do, you know, bring X, Y, Z to the room, put it there, da, 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 da. Or when he's just sort of going off on a bit of a tirade, um, you know, insulting someone or whatever it might be. He has so many monologues and they're all very fast paced. He's a very fast talking person. You know, he's he's a concierge. He needs to make sure things are where they need to be for the guests when they need them, X, Y, Z. So he's used to quick, come on, quick, we need to get the job done. Um, and that just copies over into you know the rest of his life so um absolute credit to ray fines for like really really learning these lines um you know because as an actor myself um i've i have to say my lines hundreds and hundreds of times over and over again to the point where they then become like second nature to you so you can just get on and do it um but then to be able and that's you know that that's one thing learning lines is one thing but then learning lines with like an Eminem level rapid fire delivery is absolutely astounding. So uh, fair play to Ralph uh, Ray Fiennes for that because he absolutely smashes it, pal. I really like the sequence um, after Ray Fiennes tries to enlist the help of the Society of the Crossed Keys, I believe it's called, which is basically just you know, this network chain of um, different concierges from different uh, grand hotels across the land. Um, but he, you know, they're all very similar to Ray Fiennes in the sense, uh, in his character, in the sense that they, um, you know, will put the guests first and everything, um, you know, doing whatever they can. Um, you know, they're, they're, they are sort of at the height of their powers within the realms of the hotel. Um, and then we see all of the things, about five or six of them, uh, one by one. And, you know, it starts with Bill Murray. He's simply just giving a guest directions. 
Um, and then all the other ones, they're in the midst of doing something, they ranging in sort of importance or severity. There's one of them giving CPR to a guest who was playing tennis and is obviously, you know, taking a turn. Um, he's giving CPR to it. The little uh, lobby boy comes over to him, says, you know, whispers in his ear that obviously something about this society of crossed keys or whatever it is. Um, he then goes, take over, gets the lobby boy to start doing the CPR instead and runs off, makes a phone call, or sorry, receives the phone call about it. And then... Um, as they then have to pass on the message and make other calls, the camera does a weird sort of, um, creates a sort of circle around them, which I, um, and like blacks out or, or like tints the edges around uh, on the outside of this circle, um, which sort of just, you know, is a sort of comic-y way to hone in on the importance and the secrecy of the phone call that they're making. Um, you know, and another concierge is, you know, um, helping the chefs make the stew or whatever, and he's like too much salt. Lobby boy comes over, same thing, you take over, runs off, makes the phone call, gets the black circle thing. Um, and they all have the same sequence. Um, but it's just quite comical and funny, like showing that, you know, they're, they're hotel concierges. They're not like secret spies, but like this little sequence just sort of makes it as though they have their own like secret society of, of like, you know, international um, hotel chains being, you know, somewhat spies or, I don't know, like what's that... Um, What's that secret society? It's not. Is it Mansa? Or the uh, I can't remember now. Um, you know, you might know the one I mean. It's like a secret society. You have to have a certain IQ or something to get in. So I'm never gonna get into that. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but yeah, you know, you take my point. So I'm getting near to the end of the film now. Um, I've tried not to comment on you know every individual shot and everything. So you know, to in a way again to sort of sum up, there's so much awesome camera movement to really involve you in the scene. Um, so much uh, symmetry, um, repetition of jokes as well, um, you know, just to sort of, uh, it's like that, in a way it's similar to that thing that Family Guy does, where they will just let a joke drag on and on and on so that it's funny, and then it stops becoming funny, and then it goes on so long that it becomes funny again, um, you know, there's a, there's a, for example, there's a part in the Grand Budapest Hotel where they're on the run, um, and they're, sort of meeting up at various points with these co-conspirators who are all like um are you Gustav blah 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 from the Grand Budapest Hotel in, in blah 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 and he's always like uh-huh and then they give him the next set of instructions and it happens like four times to the point where it happens on that fourth time he's like yes I am damn it just tell me what to do um you know that that sort of thing could be quite funny there's a running gag between um Ray Fiennes and uh Zero about him uh, Ray finds not flirting with um his girlfriend Agatha um played by Saoirse Ronan the wonderful Irish actress um yeah you know just sort of like running gags uh sort of not running gags with the um camera movement but you know like running themes in the sense of like how a lot of the film is shot and a lot of it is you know with all these like um tracks left and right or the the miniatures being used for like the wider shots of you know the the scenery and, and the hotel and the mountains and things um a lot of it is like you're on some sort of like side scroller flip book kind of thing like that's sort of like must have been the inspiration for a lot of the sim cinematography and the the sort of execution of the shots and things throughout um is like this side scroller type uh presentation to the audience really cool really unique uh way to to present a film um if you haven't seen this film it is fantastic i would recommend it um you know i, I can't really compare it to a lot of wes anderson's other stuff because like i said at the start i'm not uh, overly 
Um, well, I haven't dabbled in too much of his films, but I really should because I really do enjoy The Grand Budapest Hotel. It is a very good film. Yeah, so that's basically the end of uh, this one. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, tune in next time where we'll do blah, blah, blah. I haven't chosen a film for next week yet. So, yeah. Um, again, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Um, I suppose rate, review, subscribe, and all the other crap that they tell you to do on podcasts. Um, Bye.